0: Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now Chief Executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights and together we promise to provide you some inspiring thought-provoking dialogue. I'm delighted to have Professor Ola Winquist join me this week. Ola is Professor of Cellular Immunotherapy at the Karolinska Institute and Chief Physician of Clinical Immunology at Karolinska University Hospital. He received his medical qualification at the University of Sala, where he went on to achieve a PhD, focusing on experimental medicine and autoantigens in Addison's disease. Ola held a postdoctoral position at the Scripps Research Institute in California for three years, and until 2017 was chairman of the Swedish Clinical Immunology Society. In 2013, he and his team's research was awarded the Athena Prize for work in autoimmune disease. Ola is now the chairman of the Swedish Medical Society's research delegation. The Cancer Foundation and Swedish Research Council have supported Ola's research for over a decade and has received various competitive grants from the European Union and the Swedish Agency for Innovation Systems for the development of immunological therapies. Ola, I am so delighted to have you with me on Extra Time. Welcome. Thank you very much, Adam. I'm pleased to be here. So you've spent almost three decades working in the field of immunology, particularly autoantibodies. What have been the biggest changes since you received your medical qualification in the beginning of the
1: 90s? Well, when I started to become interested in autoantibodies was something that you measured with immunofluorescence. You used organs from uh, mice or monkeys, and you could identify that serum contained autoantibodies that seems to correlate with disease. During my time, and when, when I did my PhD thesis, uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of understanding uh, the nature behind autoantibodies. So, autoantibodies were being discovered, were what targets, so... GAD, glutamic acid decarboxylase for type 1 diabetes. I did myself 21-hydroxylase for Addison's disease. Mm-hmm. But also like the hydrogen pump for pernicious anemia. And that has, of course, allowed us to be very, very strict in diagnosis. And it will also lead us, I guess, to uh, early uh, possibilities of treatment. And also lately, uh, the finding that uh, also autoantibodies... Uh, against tumors has emerged as a very interesting feature, Mm -hmm. where uh, the presence of perhaps not even clinically uh, discovered tumors can be seen and identified by the immune system.
0: Now that's an area that we share um, a significant interest in and and also the role of autoantibodies. Uh, I guess, in, in autoimmune disease and and clearly infection. And we'll come on to those topics in a moment. But Ola, we, we have a, a supremely intelligent uh, listener um, here, but not all experts in immunology. So, so maybe we can provide a quick primer um, on the immune system, um, its response to disease and infection to
1: bring people up the learning curve. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. So, I mean, the immune system is, of course, composed of many different components. There is a very early response, a very primitive response, where you can basically say that anything that comes in and is different can be taken up, processed and put into pieces. And those small pieces, these are peptides, will be presented for a a more sophisticated part, the adaptive immune system, being T cells and B cells. Mm -hmm. T cells give you a cell response that could kill an infected cells, but for a long time protection, we have a particular subset of cells called B cells, and they make immunoglobulins, antibodies, and these antibodies can be around for quite some time. Actually, there is evidence 74 years from epidemias on Iceland. So these antibodies will protect you if a virus comes around or a bacteria comes around. And sometimes, unfortunately, some of these antibodies recognize your own structures, auto-structures, giving rise to auto-antibodies. So our firm belief today is that the development of auto-antibodies is a mistake, a mistaken identification of your own structure, like in the pancreas, the insulin producing cells may be destroyed, perhaps because you did an antibody response against a particular virus. We found it that during the last endemic, uh, the swine flu, where we did population based vaccination, that some people actually developed a very particular and rare disorder called narcolepsia, where you fall asleep. And it seems like the reason why you develop this is that there is a mistake of recognizing the vaccine component of influenza. But it, it's a particular resemblance to a protein in the awareness, the wakeness center of the brain so that if that is attacked, you will fall asleep. Fascinating. It is very fascinating. So antibodies are probably a mistake because of resemblance of, between a virus and a normal structure
0: but they can be very useful obviously as
1: biomarkers or maybe even targets for some therapies. Yes, definitely. I mean, autoantibodies are is usually an early telltale marker that something is going on. So where we have studied the most is for example in type 1 diabetes or like in Addison's disease where they may precede the clinical onset of disease uh, by 5 or 10 years. Hmm. And of course, they give you the possibility that you can go in with an early intervention and prevent the destruction of your own cells. And of course, if uh, you have a particular uh, uh, autoantibody recognising a structure on a tumour cell, this particular target can of course be used for a, a clinical therapy. So this is something that is being explored right now. I often get asked... Um, just how early in disease progression can you identify
0: autoantibodies? And our own data suggests that um, in some cases, four years before clinical signs and symptoms of, of a cancer. But to to think that maybe five, maybe even 10 years before a disease manifests itself to a clinician in their practice, you might be able to pick up this this biomarker is incredible.
1: Yeah, it it is amazing. I mean, uh, CCP, a marker of rheumatoid arthritis, can be seen between 5 and 10 years prior to you actually develop redness, swallowing and pain of your knee joint. So imagine that we, in the next steps, will develop better and more specific immunotherapies. This is, of course, a, a possibility to go in early and intervene before any damage has been done.
0: Yes, this idea of um interception the the ability to pick up a disease as it's in its very earliest days um so that the drugs that we currently have available and may be available to us in the future can have a greater impact. We of course know that the longer we leave a disease, often the worse the outcomes um from that disease when treated. How real a concept do you think that isn't and and how receptive do you think? pharmaceutical companies are to the idea of of intercepting um, before a disease really manifests itself?
1: I think uh, they will pick up the moment there is a good intervention. Uh, I mean, you can see that uh, many of the pharmaceutical companies today have built their wealth on preventive medicine. The simple ones is, of course, blood pressure lowering therapies. Mm -hmm or cholesterol-lowering therapies. So these are all taken to prevent uh, like stroke or, or any cardiovascular uh, event. So that has been a very fruitful way of, of conducting preventive medicine. And, of course, if you go in uh, with the same specific tool for the immune system, I think it will be very useful to prevent disease from occurring, because these are common of the population suffer from some kind of an autoimmune disease. So it's a huge burden for patients and for society with uh, absence from work uh, and lots of costs for medicines. So if you can prevent it, it will be very, very useful. Mm. And I think it's a great observation that as soon as, as soon
0: as there is a tool, an effective tool for the treatment of disease, then the detection of the disease earlier becomes um, of paramount importance. Now, let's turn the conversation slightly because, of course, um, Ola, you're Swedish. Um, you, you have lived through um, uh, the, the last six, seven, eight months um, of this pandemic, as we all have, but maybe you've seen it through a slightly different lens. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that experience?
1: Yeah, of course, the, the pandemic has been very strange. Uh, I mean, uh, we are used to having the seasonal flu coming around, and everyone was talking about this is another season of flu. Mm. And we got the first couple of import cases, but all of a sudden we had people returning from the Alps and all of a sudden it exploded. So we were not prepared, we were not ready, and I don't think anyone was ready. And we made quickly a decision at uh, our response teams that we should work with an already accepted pathway by VHO where you should keep social distance, you should wash your hands, and we should try to test people with symptoms. And that has been the Swedish strategy. Of course, we were very unfortunate uh, initially that uh, the infection made it into uh, elderly homes. And that took a deep toll, which was extremely sad. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, a mistake. And it's uh, of course, could have been prevented, perhaps. Mm. But once that has happened, I think uh, the way we have been handling it somewhere in between hysteria with closing everything down, hoping for the best people trying to spray things down, which has no evidence, of course, whatsoever that it will work to some kind of an in between way where people keep their distance uh, and try to wash their hands and we now are testing everyone with the symptom. Of course, it has been a great strain, but I I think now we have a very low uh, frequency compared to many other countries. And there is actually an under uh, rate in terms of uh, deaths now among the population. So I do think that this strategy has been quite interesting, very difficult for the elderly, because we haven't met our parents in half a year or eight months, Mm. which is, of course, the same for everyone. And of course, everyone is, is waiting and hoping for a vaccine to be developed.
0: Yes, of course. And the, the, uh, the elusive vaccine that uh, is, is one, of those, one of those promising exit strategies we've all been waiting for. Well, look, I mean, um, certainly as an outsider, we have um, marveled at your pragmatism and level-headedness in Sweden as you've dealt with this pandemic in a way that um, others haven't been able to. So I congratulate you on your, your and your colleagues' leadership in this
1: space. I think the big thing has been that the politicians have left the decisions to the, to the science. Mm, critical. And the 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 science decided beforehand that the strategy that is implied now in Sweden was the one to use. But most other countries, they stepped aside this agreement and politicians thought that it needed to be forceful by, you know, shutting down shops and things like that. Mm. And it's just mm. waiting for and because it seems like there is really no good way around it. And of course, most of us will not get a very severe disease. It's a small fraction that will get severely hit and they can be really severely hit. It's it's a bad disease if you get it and you have the the predisposition to to, to get sick. Let's focus a little bit on that. Tell me, what's the current thinking about
0: um, people's susceptibility to disease? Um, and, and, And what are the underlying mechanisms that drive The severity of the disease that um, people people suffer?
1: I mean men have always been the weak sex in terms of infections of course. Of course. Yes, Uh, so we are susceptible. I guess women on the other hand, they have a susceptibility to autoimmunity. So their immune system responds a little bit too well and men's immune system a little bit sluggish. And I think just being a little bit late to the ball is probably what causes the problem with an overweight for men. That if uh, um, you get uh, infected by the virus, you need to be fast in terms of making a certain uh, 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 transmitter, an interferon. So interferons will call upon these cells I was talking about, the adaptive cells, the T cells, and they are necessary to kill off the infection. Right. And if you are slow in attracting the T-cells and getting them into the equation, you will have a more severe disease. And we are also seeing that a fraction of people seem to have, uh, uh, they make autoantibodies actually against interferons. And this is the molecule that attracts and activates the T-cells. So of course if you have a blocking autoantibody against interferons you will not activate t cells and therefore you will be late. So there's an overrepresentation of people that have been in the ICU unit and treated with respirat- respiratory support that have autoantibodies against one of these mediators. Then of course the dose is important. So if you get a really large dose it may not matter, you will get very sick. And then it seems to be that the entry point of the virus, because the virus comes and binds to a certain receptor ACE2, which is expressed among other cells on lung cells, pneumocytes. And if ACE2 is elevated, and it is elevated on patients with high blood pressure, there is a much easier entry route for the virus. Right. So we so we believe that that entry point is probably easier among uh, individuals that are older with higher blood pressure, and among men because they don't have a very rapid and efficient immune response. Throughout um the
0: last minute or so, you've mentioned a number of times the role of autoantibodies yes. Here and at Oncomune, we have um only last week announced the collaboration with the medicines discovery catalyzer to launch our our infectious disease. Panel well, what are the links between infectious diseases autoimmune diseases and and, and cancer that that makes um, the the pivot of, a, of a, an auto antibody focused company into um, infectious diseases so so meaningful
1: I think I mean you can learn very much from very rare disorders, and one such rare disorder is autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type one mm-hmm. This is a horrible disease which is manifested by destruction of multiple glands, including adrenals and parathyroid glands. But on top of that, that any endocrine gland can be affected, they have chronic mycocutaneous candidiasis. And one of the reasons for these patients coming down with this chronic candida yeast infection is because they have autoantibodies against interferons. Oh, interesting. So if you're not able to use the communicative uh, uh, measurements that are necessary to recruit the right cells, of course you will be de- de- delayed and that can be used by certain pathogens, including viruses uh, 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 and, and fungi.
0: So do we, do we think that there is then a role for autoantibodies or other biomarkers for that matter um, in, in stratifying patients to those that may or may not respond in a particular way? Um, to To these diseases and and the potential therapies um, that we're we 're due to get
1: yes of course they do. I mean, you can take another example from infections diseases, tuberculosis, so some of the patients that are vulnerable to get tuberculosis a typical tuberculosis bacteria mm-hmm. uh, they Uh, have mutations in the gamma interferon signaling pathway, the receptor or one of these introductions, or they have autoantibodies against gamma interferon. So, of course, if you have gamma interferon antibodies, it will be difficult to give gamma interferon, the cytokine, as a treatment. Uh, uh, But if you have a mutation, well, you could probably give uh, gamma interferon. So that would definitely stratify you but i do also think if you move into cancer I, I think what becomes interesting here is that individuals that have been able to raise and mount an immune response against the tumor by having immunoglobulins or antibodies recognizing likely a mutated protein or a protein that is being expressed in the wrong time in the wrong situation hmm. that kind of indicates and flags that T-cells and B-cells are recognizing the tumor as dangerous and foreign, and these are likely uh, more uh, uh, susceptible to immunotherapy. So the use of another set of antibodies like checkpoint inhibitors or T-cell therapies may be more useful in uh, autoantibody positive individuals. So I do think that it may be actually a critical investigation to determine who is going to be uh, useful to put on uh, immunotherapy in the future. It's incredible, isn't it, how... um
0: over this period of time it brings into sharp focus. The pace at which we've built our knowledge about a disease that hitherto had never existed or certainly hadn't existed in a form that that bothered us too much. How how has the the recent pandemic, how has the the COVID infection impacted your field, impacted immunology and, and your understanding of the field? Are there are there interesting facts that we today understand that simply 12 months ago we We had never even considered.
1: Yeah, I think two parts that become interesting. The the first part is, of course, the immune response. Uh, uh, That that the immune response, uh, uh, even if I was previously talking about it, may be too slow in men. It is because it's inadequate. It stays in this uh, uh, primitive innate cells, which will give you a cytokine storm, which will induce a lot of fluids getting into your lungs which is the reason why you cannot oxygenate your blood. So the, the tremendous force, how this virus can evac- activate the immune system, and by a, a cross-pathways cross also induce coagulation. So that was something that really wasn't known, that there is an, a, a cytokine storm and a coagulation storm, a microcoagulation, which results in small Uh, Blood clots, perhaps, in the brain uh, and in tissues. So that's why you become tired and people are exhausted afterward and feel like a brain fog, which may actually be small uh, blood clots in the brain. Interesting. Interesting. And the other part is, of course, that I think now, for one of the first times, um, there is a lot of efforts going into understanding how to make a good immune response as a vaccine. So we we have previously been using the good old traditional uh, like a semi-attenuated whole virus uh, uh, vaccine uh, which has been injected once and that gives you about 50-60% protection against the flu. And now there are many alternative pathways where we are developing uh, additional, stronger adjuvant support for the, t- the response. We are aiming towards not only an immunoglobulin response, but also a T cell response. So I think th- these are the two fields that we have been learning a lot of things from the corona uh, uh, pandemic.
0: I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, that um, these pandemics do really advance the field of medicine and, and medical sciences. So. So dramatically, I guess for every cloud there is a, a silver lining, as the saying goes. The the, the media has um, uh, not always found that silver lining in the yeah. uh, in their in their reporting of the, the covid the covid pandemic. Yeah. Um, I certainly have found there to be a huge amount of optimism in 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 healthcare. But but what what has made you optimistic
1: about the future of healthcare delivery during this time? I think we have been able to work together. Uh, I I think it's an extremely huge effort in terms of putting efforts together to bring out vaccines quickly, Mm -hmm. to bring up testing to the speed where we are, that we can actually test anyone with symptoms and uh, trace who they have been in contact with. And of course, I mean, we will have COVID-20, 20, 21 or 23, it will come again. Yes. In another feature, we will have uh, influenza var- variations that will come again. So, I mean, this is nothing new. And compared to the 1918 Spanish flu, COVID is still, mm, it's, it's, uh, it's not as severe. It is, it, it is a bad, uh, it's a really bad flu, it is, but it's not as severe as uh, the Spanish flu. No. Of so we will have this kind of pandemic coming back uh, over and over again, and I think we, we will be prepared. And I, I make the parallel uh, uh, conclusion that, you know, before uh, 9-11, uh, you stepped onto the plane directly, and we are not flying like that anymore. There's a lot of protections and a lot of instructions and standard operating procedures in order to board a plane, and i think that will be a part of our everyday society life in the future that we will think about pandemics how we actually move about and washing hands and keeping more of a distance and thinking twice uh, going into airplanes so i think that will reflect on, on how we actually globally move about
0: yes i think i think you're right i mean the responsiveness to this virus has been um, awe-inspiring, Herculean. People have moved mountains to um, not only diagnose, understand, but as you say, develop therapies towards this. And I'm sure the preparedness we have for the inevitable next pandemic um, is is improved as a result. I too think um, uh, the world has changed um, and maybe maybe for the better, um, we will see. Before we wrap up, um, a final question um, that I'd like to ask everyone, sat where? You are Ola. I mean, if you if you could pick three people to sit in your
1: seat, um, who who might they be, and what question might you ask them? (laughs) That's a very interesting question. No, uh, I mean we are now in the Nobel Prize week, and uh, there is an extremely overrepresentation of Nobel Prize winners in immunology and in infectious disease. So the first one I would like to have here is Paul Ehrlich, who in 1908 got the Nobel Prize for autotoxins so in the beginning of the 19th he actually discovered that there were autoantibodies he didn't have the right name for it immunoglobulins didn't exist nor did b cells or t cells but still at that time he made the correct observation and called it horror autotoxicus yes when you could attack your own body so I would love to have a discussion on him and in his experiments, uh, coming to that conclusion that autotoxins actually did exist. <laughs> the, the, se- the second, uh, which is actually two people I would like to invent, and that is the Nobel Prize from 1984, and those George Koehler and Cesar Milstein. And these are, were rewarded at the Nobel Prize for uh, the ability to produce monoclonal antibodies. So uh, monoclonal antibodies is the first really step forward to treat using antibodies as treatment. So uh, monoclonal antibodies are used in everyday treatment of autoimmune diseases where we inhibit cytokines like TNF-alpha inhibitors. And this has been uh, revolutionizing uh, how we treat patients, but also in terms of tests without monoclonal antibodies common tests for autoantibodies would not have been possible. So I think uh, to discuss with them and ask them how they came up with the idea to fuse cells to make hybridomas and how they actually came to understand that you need a certain uh, component to fuse the cells, I think that was brilliant and it has been used ever since then. And finally, uh, um, I would like to invite uh, Susumu Tonegawa, and that is the Nobel Prize laureate from 1987. And he solved the big puzzle and understood how immunoglobulins, antibodies, and autoantibodies, how they can be so diverse. Theoretically, we have ten to the fifteenth number of different autoantibodies. That is like the U.S. government budget deficit, <laughs> one with 15 zero behind it. And, 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 and that's a huge number. And we have a limited space in our genome, but he came up with a particular way that small fragments, uh, like 50 of them and 30 of others and 20 of a third kind, could be combined in an infinite number of uh, means Results in that we have antibodies against everything possible. So these are the three or actually four people I would like to invite and sit and discuss uh, the, the basis for auto-antibodies and antibody understanding.
0: I mean, it would be an incredible panel, wouldn't it, or round table, and yes. you'd sit there in awe at the, the pace of progress over the last century from those very early days of Ehrlich and, and colleagues yeah. um, in, in the field of immunology, which has come on leaps and bounds today and, and is having tremendous impact on patient lives. Amazing. Professor Ola Winquist. Thank you very much um, for joining me um, today. Uh, you've been a gentleman I've learned a tremendous amount. Um, uh, you have distilled what is an incredibly complex field down to a point at which uh, even I can, can understand it. Many thanks.
1: Thank you for having me, Adam.